Last week, we began this series in miracles and talking about this conversation of do mir- what is a miracle and how do they occur and all these things. I was reminded of my basketball days a little bit as, we kinda, as I kind of lead into this idea. And uh, back in my basketball days, I, like I told everybody, I was a decent basketball player, but I, I was raised to play center and I'm barely, maybe six feet tall in shoes, you know, kind of problem. And that, if you know anything, that's not tall enough to be the guard, So, which is the smallest guy on the team. And so the problem was I didn't have very good ball handling, so I rode the bench, but I rode the bench on the best team Corona High had. And we'd gotten all the way to the semifinals of, um, uh, for the uh, CIF uh, semifinals, and we were like, it was a, or, yeah, quarterfinals or semifinals, one, quarterfinals or something like that, and we were playing this team, and I can still remember, we were warming up, and I'm looking at this team, and they're like big, and they're tall, and they're jumping, and they're athletic, and they're just, and I'm looking at them going like, these guys are awesome, we're in the Norco High Gym, and here's looking at them going, these guys are incredible, I'm looking at us, I'm like, we're from Corona, you know, there's just this op- opposite problem going on here, and, and I'm riding the bench, and suddenly these guys get the ball, and I'm watching the team, suddenly you heard, showtime. And I go, what's showtime? Everybody went, what's showtime? And everybody kind of looks at each other, what's showtime? Their two largest guys go running down the sides, the sidelines to the baseline and start to cross. The guard takes a dribble over, just throws the ball up in the air in the direction of the rim. And one of the guys grabs it and sideline dunks the, dunks the basketball over our center and just runs down going, woo! And I'm like, that, that's what showtime is. Okay. And so the whole game, four or five plays in, suddenly be showtime. And you're like, oh, and everybody look at each other. Who am I guarding? Who am I? There it goes. Every single, they destroyed us. Now they got destroyed by, by modern day, but I quickly learned what showtime was. It was their code for finish them now, you know, that kind of reality. And and so you you learn in basketball and you learn in baseball that there are signs that are being given. There's communication that is given on the court that the other team's not supposed to know. So if you've ever been in baseball, you know guys are like picking their ears and noses and touching their heads and doing all this stuff. And eventually something was supposed to be done by a base runner or a batter or something in the midst of all that whatever that guy was doing. In basketball, you yell out things like showtime, red two, or whatever it was to ensure that the communication is passed, but it's coded and it's made sure nobody else gets this. And what's interesting is that miracles, while they are a wonder and we've learned a lot about them, God calls them both signs and wonders. And that what he has done is he's reached into this universe and he's working. You see, last week we dispelled the idea that God has just simply spun the universe into existence and walk away and doesn't deal with it anymore. But rather, he's intimately involved. He's constantly engaged in his providence, his regular working in the universe. And yet then he will occasionally, in an uncommon manner, reach in and interact directly with the universe in a miracle. And when he does that, it blows our minds away. We're a wonder and we go, wow, God is actually doing something. And we see that God reaches in because he wants to communicate something to us. He wants to get our attention. He's yelling, showtime! And we better pay attention. Because showtime's happening. He's communicating. There's something we need to know. There's something that you and I need to engage in. Because he's just gone, showtime! And we're like, whoa, what's going to happen next? Who am I guarding? What am I doing? All that stuff. And there's a communication that God is giving us through a miracle that wants to wake us up and show us what he is doing. 
And it's important then as we dive into this, that as we left it, that God has reached in to act to communicate to us something really important so we better pay attention and so, the, so that we need to say, well, what are you communicating, God? What are you doing here? And first of all, we want to see that we should pay attention because miracles are not just wonders, they're signs. They're signs like that basement. They're signs like that showtime. They're communicating something to us. And just like you had to be on the team to know what was being communicated to, God prepped the Jewish people ahead of time to communicate to them about this showtime that he was going to reveal to the world around him. He was going to bring about this miracle to spark interest and tell them something. And it was always focused around one concept. There was the concept, big word called covenant. And God's Old Testament covenant, his covenant, his, his cut with people, his promise, it goes deeper than a promise. It's, it's like what you do at a marriage. You make a covenant with somebody else. God point, brings his covenant about and he starts revealing it through miracles. He says, I am standing with you guys. I'm here with you, and I'll prove it through miracles. The original covenant that we're looking at then is this one found in Genesis chapter 12. Now, this guy named Abram right here at the beginning, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. This guy is at the beginning of your Bible. If you started journeying through your Bible and you get to chapter 12 of book one, you get to know this guy named Abram. He lived in the land of Ur, and Ur was a real place in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. And while he's living there and all these kind of uprisings and stuff are occurring, God comes to Abram and tells him, I want you to leave. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house and to the land that I will show you. And so Abram rises up, moves away, goes up north and comes down into modern day Syria, Lebanon, and Israel in that area. And so as he travels into this territory, God has given him this promise to your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And a lot of people love to focus on the blessing portion. But the Jewish people, when they read this text, what they focused on was actually this part right here, right here, verse 2. And I will make of you a great, what? Nation. Abram had no children at the time. God brought about children to Abraham, in particular one named Isaac. And Isaac had a Jacob, and Jacob had these 12 sons. These 12 sons end up enslaved down in Egypt. And it's at that time when this, the, the children of these sons are enslaved. Thousands and thousands and thousands, if not a couple million people enslaved under Egyptian law and rule, suddenly find themselves in a situation. God shows up to a guy named Moses. Now, many of you know who Moses is. This happens in the book of Exodus. And Moses steps into the scene, having been raised in Pharaoh's court, and comes forward to Pharaoh and says, God told me to let the people go. And then God authenticates this message by giving him miracles. And these signs, these miracles are given to him as a sign to tell Pharaoh, my God is more powerful than you. My God is more powerful than your gods. And you're going to let us go. And eventually it gets to that very point where they're just like, get out of here. Take our stuff. Leave us alone. We don't want to see you again. They march out and miracle upon miracle upon miracle occurs for these people as God establishes them as a nation. He gives them leadership. He sets up a king eventually. He gives them a ruling body. And eventually this kingdom, after it's been established, starts to lose ground. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, after David has been dead, another one of his sons rises up and actually and, and marries into this weird situation. 
Elijah and Elisha rise up, who are two prophets, and they do all these miracles. And the goal in these miracles is to call all the nation back away from the Baals to the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And as he calls them back, or Jehovah, and he says, this is who God is. And he does miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle to reestablish this covenant. He says, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who established you as a nation. You're not going to abandon me. Eventually, Israel doesn't listen very well, and neither does Judah, the nation that is, uh, that's divided, find themselves in exile. And so God presents another great time of miracles. It's in the time of a guy named Daniel. How many of you who are Christians, you know Daniel's like, oh, that's a prophecy book. It's also a time of a lot of miracles occurring. From handwriting on the wall, guys being thrown into fire and surviving. And the prophets are doing things and declaring things that other people are like, this is crazy, what's going on? God was getting their attention. He was trying to signify to the people, you are my nation. Don't lose your identity. I've taken you away from the gods of the land. I'm your God. Wake up. All the miracles in the Old Testament then are constantly pointing back to this fact that God, the Lord, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who made Israel a nation. Well, the Old Testament closes shortly after, after Israel returns to their own land and building their nation. And no real miracles are occurring. In fact, uh, the, the history between your New the Old Testament and your New Testament in your Bible is actually one that's kind of complicated. I don't have time to get into it. But the reality is that there's this concept that begins to build amongst the people. That God has made us a nation, and that nation isn't just here locally. It's a globalized nation. It's a nation where we're going to inherit the earth. It's a nation in which God's going to rule everything. And these stories began to trickle up from a guy named, from Daniel's prophecies, from Ezekiel and another guy named Zechariah. And they call out that there's going to be this great nation that will be established in Israel. And there will be one who is king over that nation. And they're going to call him the Messiah, or as we call him, the Christ. And it is in this picture that they're expecting a Christ to rise up, a military commanding leader, to set up a nation, to throw out Rome and all the others, and to conquer the world, that they suddenly go, hey, who's this baby in this manger? Jesus steps in. And what's interesting about Jesus is in the New Testament, the miracles of the New Testament don't center around this kingdom as much as they center around this Jesus, who is the coming of the kingdom. You see, he's the king himself, and he steps into this place, and he is actually a very unique person. He himself, Jesus, is a miracle. Isn't that what we celebrate at Christmas? Isn't that what we sing in our songs and we, and, we, and we wonder at when our kids are opening presents? We try to tell them, look, Jesus was a present from God. And hopefully you're doing that. You're not just like, presents! You know, you know, you're ordering as Christians, getting it together. But the reality here is that Jesus was the first miracle. In Philippians chapter, or the first, mir- the first miracle in this time frame. Jesus himself is born of a virgin. You have these angels that appear announcing his coming. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, you get an example of how incredible this is. If you want to go there, you can read it. Then I'll just read it to you guys. Paul is writing to the Philippians. He's trying to encourage them to be humble in their, in their living. And he says, So have a humility like Christ Jesus did, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He says, Although he was garbed as God, he was God himself, he didn't want to hold on to that power. We've all heard the saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? But not for, not for Jesus. For God, he's willing to let go of absolute power to do what? He made himself nothing. 
taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here you have this picture of Jesus, the God of the universe, the one who formed everything, the one who has made it all that you and I see, the God who chose and said, Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Who brought about the Exodus, who saved Israel from so many things. This God now says, you know what, it's time. I'm going to step in. Their Messiah is coming and it's going to be me. God himself steps in on the scene as a human being. Steps in on the scene to become the very king of the nation that he's been telling everybody that is coming. And then he begins to prove it through what? Through miracles. You see, what did we say? Miracles is God's showtime. And when Jesus showed up, God said, showtime. Thank, thank God he didn't say hammer time. You know, it's like, but he says showtime. And here suddenly God shows up in the greatest instance of a miracle. He becomes a human being. And now around him comes all of these miracles first, revealing that he was the king of the kingdom. He was the ruler of that kingdom. And one of the pictures of that rule is his ability to walk around and cast out demons Who else listens except to the king in their own kingdom? And he has the right to command them to leave. And he gives that right away. The second thing is this weird picture. All of us know of it. There's this giant, massive crowd of 5,000 men plus their women and their, their, their kids. And as he's standing there preaching, they all get hungry. And all they got is some little boy's lunch. And suddenly, Jesus does something that's radically incredible. If, if you've ever studied anything about the laws of thermodynamics or invested yourself in any form of scientific inquiry, you know what happens when he feeds the 5,000 and he multiplies bread and he multiplies these fish is that he literally is creating matter. Matter cannot be created nor destroyed. And yet here is the king over the universe, literally producing food, creating matter, blowing people away. That There was so much made, they had leftover baskets of food. And what this reminded everybody in the crowd of was the fact that God is the one who will provide. Will not the king over his nation provide for his nation? And they remembered way back when little old Moses is walking through the desert with millions of people complaining behind him that God made manna, gave them food, provided for their need, provided for the new nation. And suddenly everybody looked at Jesus and said, we're going to make that guy king. He's got to be the king. He's got to be this Messiah. God's nation is going to be ruled by this guy who's going to provide for us. He's going to tell the demons to go away. This, this has got to be the king. But he, did, he went even one step further. Jesus wasn't just showing off he was the king. He wasn't just trying to proclaim with his miracles that, hey, take a look here. Showtime. I'm the king. No, he's saying, showtime. Guess what? I'm the priest. You see, there's these instances where these guys come up. They're called lepers. In our culture, we know of a leper. Somebody who loses leprosy is the inability to feel your, uh, your nerves. And so you can accidentally chop things off and your body rots. It's a horrible disease. In in this case, in the ancient biblical time period, some of that was there, but most of this was skin diseases. Bad enough skin diseases, we we don't know how to heal them. So people would go to the temple and they'd say to go to the priest. They'd have the priest who was their local doctor examine them and, and declare them clean or unclean. If you were declared unclean, you were not allowed to hang out with anybody in your family. You were exiled from the community. There were these small leper colonies and these places where basically if you, were, you had a disease you wanted and hung out with the diseased people, you were unwanted. And Jesus steps up to these people. The only last person they were probably touched by other than another leper was the priest who examined them. 
And, the, and this Jesus comes up, touches them. And in that touching, he cleanses them, takes that leprosy away. And in a very real sense, declares them clean, as only the priest can do. In addition to this, what's odd about this is that Jesus also takes another prerogative on himself. You want to talk about how audacious Jesus was. He has this paralytic standing next to him, and he tells him, your sins are forgiven. To be forgiven of sin, in the ancient context, you had to bring a bull or a goat or an, un, you know, an unblemished sheep. You had to bring something of value from your flock. You had to bring it in this parade up to the temple, have its throat slit, its blood poured out, it cooked and burned up on an altar, and its blood sprinkled. It was a nasty mess. And then he could declare that your sins were atoned for, but only God could forgive them. And Jesus, in audacity, says, your sins are forgiven. He takes the place of the priest, if not even in that very declaration, saying, I am God. For he was God, declaring that I'm the priest of this nation, I'm the king of this nation, and I'm the prophet of this nation. I will tell you everything that you need to know. And every sign he did pointed and declared, and every miracle he performed pointed back to himself, to the power, and to his kingdom. Jesus pointed up to his father and out to the kingdom. All this is, all this is to say, again, simply this, that guys, God does miracles. He reaches in and he acts. And when he acts, we need to sit up and pay attention because somebody just yelled showtime. Something's about to happen. He's communicating to you and to me to get our attention. And so it's important that we grasp this and we should pay attention because what God is teaching about, he wants to tell us something. What he's telling us about is about his kingdom, his nation. This nation has come. This nation is here. It's already established on this earth, but it's not fully come. It's begun, but it's not fully here. And let me, let me show you how this works out. What is this thing? If, you, if you've read your New Testament, uh, if you read the Old Testament, you run into Abram. If you read the New Testament, you run into this concept called the kingdom of heaven. Everybody heard of the kingdom of heaven? Throw up your hand real quick. How many of you heard then of the kingdom of God? Any, okay. Some people get confused. They're like, aren't those two different things? No, they're the same thing. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, we know, were the declaration. The Jewish people called it the kingdom of heaven because they didn't want to use the word God because they were trying to keep that reverence and they didn't want to speak in vain. And so there were two ways of indicating the same nation that he promised Abram. The same nation that would be established as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom had a king named the Christ that Jesus was declaring himself to be. And every miracle was pointing back to this kingdom and, so, and authenticating one thing. It was the message of the kingdom. We know it as what? The gospel. We all know what the gospel is, right? We got this down. Somebody can stand there with your tract in hand and say, Jesus died for your sins on the cross. He rose from the dead to give you new life. If you'll simply admit that you're a sinner and receive his forgiveness of sins, that he took your place there, you will be forgiven and you'll have eternal life and peace with God. That's the gospel. Amen? Here's the beauty of it. There was a Roman gospel too. In fact, in the ancient world, there were lots of gospels. The word gospel is we get it from the word good spell, meaning good story. And actually, the euangelion, which is the actual Greek translation, the evangelist is where we get the word, word from. We get euangelion, turns into evangelist. And what we have is this proclamation is what it meant. And a Roman proclaimer would step into a town after this entire nation had been conquered by the Romans and go, I have great news. You belong to the Romans. 
That means you have the peace of the Romans on you. You get to bow to Caesar. This is an awesome day, isn't it? How'd you like that? Somebody marched in here, Chinese people marched up. They're like, we took over California. This is a great day. Let me tell you some good news. You are now communists. I think a lot of us would be like, uh, that does not sound like good news. That That does not sound like the category called good news in my book. But that's the context that good news is preached in. In fact, when the evangelists would roll into a town, it's more likely they would turn and say, I've got great news for you. The king of all the earth, Jesus, has conquered. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered all the nations, for they will bow down to him in the end. He is the king and God, and he has come to declare peace with you if you will receive him, for he is the Lord of lords. That's the gospel proclamation. Attached to that proclamation that God's kingdom has come and is ruling is an invitation. You can either rebel and fight that kingdom, or you can join. Just so you know, if you rebel and fight, you'll lose. FYI, the prophets already said so. And it's in this context suddenly that you hear the kingdom of God and the gospel. Every miracle was authenticating because imagine you of this kingdom, imagine you and me walking into, like Paul did, a city called Lystra. They never heard of Jesus. They never heard of Judaism really. And he marches in and they do this amazing miracle. They get so freaked out in their own language. They go to sacrifice to Zeus and these guys because they think Paul is, is one of these gods of theirs. And Paul and Barnabas have to restrain them saying, no, no. And then they teach them the kingdom of God. They proclaim the gospel to them saying, the kingdom of God has come. This God who does these great miracles is here. He has overcome sin, he, which means he can forgive you. He has overcome death, which means you can't, how do you stop somebody who beat death? You kill them. No, they beat death. They come back. How can you beat somebody who beats sin? We'll we'll make make God hate them. No, they've been forgiven. The kingdom of God is an unstoppable force because the greatest things that can stop human endeavor and human beings doing what God has made us to do is sin and death and those have been dealt with. And so you and I don't sit in some position where we're like, oh, sinners and I'm scared. No, The gospel proclamation is God already won. He beat sin. He beat death. He beat disease. He's beat the demons. He's beat the evil of this world. He is the king and the conqueror. He's won. If you want to be a part of that, come on in. Because the door is open if you'll receive Jesus Christ on the cross. Attached to that message is the authentication of miracles. And miracles then are signs that point to Jesus and point to the kingdom rule. Let's put it this way. They reveal the life that is coming in that rule of Jesus. So what's the kingdom? The kingdom is wherever Jesus rules. Let's just make it simple. It's that proclamation, but it's wherever Jesus rules. Does Jesus rule in in, in heaven? Yes or no? Simple quiz. Does Jesus rule in heaven? Yes or no? Does Jesus rule in your heart if you're a Christian? Yes or no? Does Jesus rule on earth? Ooh, here's the complicated question. The answer is yes and no. Yes, his established rule has begun. Yes, he has right over every human being. Yes, he will judge everyone because his rule is already here. It just doesn't look like it yet. No, because they're still rebelling. 
But eventually, Jesus rules everything. And when it ultimately comes about, when she fully rules everything, it, it states what it looks like in the book of Revelation. And it's the first time I can actually say this. And I'm so glad the book of Revelation was clear. So anyway, the... Uh... <laughs> It's not a very clear book, but in this case, it gives us some pretty powerful hints of what eternity and the kingdom of God is going to look like when it comes fully and completely. John, who is the guy writing this prophecy, states it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and the surfers mourned. Uh, No, it doesn't say that. let me, let me explain. It's a pretty interesting thing. The old earth and the old heaven has been subjugated to, car, to destruction. In fact, in, in, in much of the conversation in the ancient church, it was subjugated to the rule of, of the enemy. Satan has right and rule as the prince of the power of the air. And there's all these aspects of, of the rule of the demonic in this world and the rule of the world. And so God deals with it by completely rebirthing the heavens and the earth taking it back all completely his. He's dealt with all the demons. He's dealt with all the, all the people who've rebelled. They've all gone and they've all been put, placed away in hell in their, in their quarantine and in that punishment. And yet what he goes into is this. He says, there is a new heaven and a new earth and the sea was no more. The sea, it was in the mind of the ancient world, the location of the primordial evils. It was the place in which the demons, it was the representation of demonic and the powers of the gods and the uncontrolled chaos. And what it is saying is not that there's no oceans and there's no sea. It is saying that there is no demonic power or any kind of chaos that remains. It's dealt with. This is exactly the picture you get when Jesus is casting out demons. This is exactly the picture you get when the apostles cast out demons and have power over demons. They are showing you the picture of what kingdom life looks like. It is not a world filled with evil. It is not a world filled with chaos. And it is not a world governed by the the deceit and evil of the enemy. And so it's a picture of that. The miracles that you will see, even in our day, claim back to this ultimate picture that the kingdom of God has come, the rule of Jesus has begun. And at times, he establishes it by reaching in to show it and authenticate the message. Now, He goes on then, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her. Now, I don't know about you, I I remember guys, not girls, but guys, I, I remember my bride coming down the aisle. I still see her in my head walking across. It helps that we watch a video every year of my bride walking down the aisle, but I still see her coming down, and man, it's an incredible experience. Here is an incredible love, but God has adorned the church. God has adorned his saints with holiness. This is a picture of, of a world without sin. This is a picture of intimacy with God. It's also a picture of God's provision. Note, Jesus' works show God's provision, shows his forgiveness of sin. He provides us with new life in the resurrection. He provides us with forgiveness and sanctification by his spirit through the cross. Guys, We have the kingdom already building and growing through us because of what Jesus has done. And it ultimately comes in the end when it is perfectly connected. Now it goes on. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't this the picture of of them being brought near to God? Isn't this the picture of people being forgiven? Of Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, the paralytic being raised up. We can dwell with God. Right now, 
If you're a Christian, you have the opportunity to know God intimately through his word, by his spirit, to walk with him and to know and enjoy him because he's given you his son. You have the kingdom, the opportunity to know that kingdom and experience it now. Are you settling for just church? Are we settling just for volunteerism? Or are we going to seek that God is desiring to move in us? That he is desiring to bring about his kingdom through us. And as we proclaim the message of his gospel, that he has overcome these things and that there's forgiveness in the blood of Christ and transformation through the resurrection, that God will act to authenticate it. He'll be pointing back because this is what we have. This is the kingdom that we are in and we are proclaiming that we will have a relationship with God and intimacy with him because our sins are no more. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Anybody in pain right now want to say amen? Anybody who's in mourning right now want to say amen? I mean, guys, Jesus wept over Lazarus and rose him from the dead because there is going to be no mourning. He saw people in physical pain and they healed at the touch of his robe because in the kingdom of God, there is no pain. The former things have passed away and occasionally in his uncommon work, he reaches in and goes, showtime. I want to show you what my kingdom is like. I want to show you that this message is real. I want to show you that these things have occurred. I want to show you that Jesus Christ on the cross bore your sins. He rose from the dead that you and I might have peace with God. And I'm going to show you with my showtime sign. He reaches in. He works to speak to us this message. So we better pay attention. Amen? And that is what's happening here. He's bringing these pieces out. They're signs of this kingdom. They're revealing these things. They authenticate the gospel as Paul's miracles did, as Peter's miracles did, as those miracles roll out throughout the centuries. They're commonly found in missionary zones. You know why? God's authenticating his gospel to people who haven't heard it. He's showing that this message is true. I have a tendency to believe less miracles happen in the U.S. for two reasons. One, because we're skeptical, but two, because we ought to know better to know that this is true. We live in the midst of a world that has been formed by it. But God will capture our attention. He'll wake us up. He'll move us forward. In fact, you want a great sign? You don't need a miracle. You want a great sign the gospel is powerful? Go find yourself a messed up, rotten, dirty sinner like you are, and I am. And watch what he does when they receive Jesus. How selfishness turns to selflessness. How arrogance turns to humility. How anxiety becomes peace. How control becomes release. How when it was all about me, it becomes all about others. When harming other people didn't matter to when I need to apologize and deal with that. People get radically and just altered, transformed. You want a message, tell your story. Your testimony is the, pro, is the proclamation of the very miracle that occurs in our hearts when we're saved. Do you not realize it's a miracle? Do we not see that when the rebel comes before the king, he pulls the sword to attack. He doesn't bend the knee. 
And yet all of us who are rebels, when we heard the proclamation, somehow found ourselves dropping our swords and bending our knees and being changed from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God. Let your testimony be the most powerful change that you could possibly give. Because no matter whether you were born in the church or whether you were saved when you were 16 or what, you all have one. And the manifestation of the power of God through his gospel shows in the transformation of our wicked, nasty, dark hearts. I don't have a wicked, nasty, dark heart. Look closer. We all do. And the proclamation of the kingdom of God is setting us free from the shackles of sin that we've all been put in, from the darkness that we've all been closed in because it's the kingdom of light. There's so much going on that God is authenticating through the miracles that we need to wake up and be aware that God is acting. And he wants that message to be the center point, that kingdom to be the center of all that he's doing. But be careful. You need to pay attention. And here's why. Because there are false signs that point away from the kingdom. Not every miracle comes from God. Say, what? Yeah, there's some pretty amazing things people do in the name of other religions. There's some pretty amazing things that blown people away, missionaries away as they walked around out there and watched people, for example, in several readings that I've read, of guys in the name of of their Hindu gods stabbing themselves in hearts. In their heart with a knife, they did x-rays, they looked at it, the knife was in there. Yeah, he was able to pull it out and walk away. And he would do it to basically scare travelers. He wasn't proclaiming anything. He just wanted to show that he could do it. I don't get it. But there are signs and wonders that can be done and the dangers, they're pointing away from the kingdom of God. They're pointing away from the gospel. There are plenty of people who will will show up on your television and do some pretty amazing things. But when it comes down to their message, it's more about whether you send in your money than it is about a proclamation of a kingdom that is God's. It may be about a proclamation of their own kingdom, maybe a proclamation of their own stuff, but it's not a proclamation of the kingdom of God. And you have to be careful because not all miracles should be ran after. Some of them, honestly... They're just plain illusions. We had a magician here. And wow, that guy was good. How many, anybody see the guy? It was incredible. He could make this thing disappear. Just like, oh, watch, boom. And you're like, what did you do? And it's all sleight of hand. He's not doing anything with spirituality. He's just, manip- he's just got real strong hands. He's able to manipulate things really well to make them disappear or show up and be concealed. And it's mind-blowing what, he, what the guy could do. And yes, some people use that stuff Some healers and things use those kind of sleight of hand tricks to make people think that they have power. And they don't. But there are some cases, as 2 Thessalonians warns us, that there is a power beyond us. There is an evil power in this world that can indeed mock the miracles of God. It comes in the coming, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, speaking of the end times in a sense, it's saying, which it says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Note that, false signs and wonders exist. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And he says, here's how you differentiate a false sign and wonder from a true one. The false sign and wonder points you away from the kingdom of God. It points you away from the gospel. It makes you, it says, look at this amazing thing. Look how great I am. Believe in me. Believe in what I'm peddling. Not about what God has done through the resurrection and the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And we have to be careful because the warning then I have is this. Not all power is good. So don't seek miracles alone. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't seek out a miracle. I'm not saying you shouldn't come and be prayed over. But if you get caught in the methodology of seeking the miracle for the miracle itself, seeking the power for the power itself, you are ripe and ready for, to be deceived. You are ripe and ready to be washed away in a false message. We are to seek Christ and seek him alone. We are to seek his kingdom and his gospel, and he will sometimes, in his uncommon way, reach in and go, showtime, and we're to lean and go, what is he doing? What is he authenticating? The message comes as a sign. The message comes to tell us something really, really important. In fact, it's so important, he threw out all the other signs and said, I have one central thing that's super important that I want you to hear about. We'll talk about that next week. Um, in the meantime, what we see here is there are false ones. Be careful. Don't go running after them, but judge and test them. Test them by checking if they proclaim the gospel. Do they line up with the truth? This is what we have. We know this is from God. We judge miracles and we judge the events by whether they align with the Scripture, by whether they align with the truths of Scripture. Where they do not and the gospel is being falsely proclaimed, we do not involve ourselves with those things. Amen? So seek God. If he makes miracles happen, praise God. Let's worship God for that. It's a wonder, but let's remember it's pointing back to this message, which leads me to this. Don't go seeking miracles at the sake of preaching his kingdom. You want to see miracles grow in your life and see miracles happen? Proclaim the gospel more, not less. Proclaim the kingdom of God more, not less. Do the works of the kingdom more, not less. And God will begin to act and work to authenticate the message that he brings through us. The calling to us then is to be a people who preach his word. But when a miracle happens, we need to pay attention. The only reason I really focus on this is because of my own experience. Now, it's hard for me to explain what happened on the 71. You're like, ooh, a car accident story. No, no. The, the best way I can put this is that it was a miracle. And I don't know how to otherwise explain it. I was headed to Cal Poly Pomona. I, was in one, I did one quarter at Cal Poly Pomona. Love that place. Um, but it was, no, it was no reason of mine that I left. In fact, what had happened was I was driving down the 71 one morning in the middle of the, in the, middle of the quarter. And as I, as I was driving, literally, I found myself, and I don't know physically or what, but I was behind this cubicle unfolding these plans, holding them in my hand. And I was looking over them, muttering under my breath. And I rolled them up and I backed away. I can still remember the, the chair rolling away. And I walked to this very large white wall with all these windows overlooking a factory floor. And I walked up to this metal door, very, very metal staircase that I walked down to the factory floor. And I walked up and all these green machines are running and I pulled them out and I called these guys over and I started yelling and cussing about every single thing that they messed up on that design. And I rolled it back up under my arm and next thing I know, I'm back in my car on the 71. Not in an accident, but I don't know what happened. But I do know one very clear thing, that in that moment, God spoke to me and said, you are not to be an engineer. You're to be a pastor. 
That, that vision has grounded me, and not everybody gets to have one of those things in ministry, but it, it's grounded me through my own struggles in my heart, through the uproars that occur in ministry, through watching and trying to restore people, through all these things, that grounding is because he was trying to get me to a place where ministry could continue forward in my life because he wanted that message to be proclaimed. You may not ever receive a vision. You may not ever receive a miracle like that. But God, when he acts, is trying to make us pay attention because he wants to use us for his kingdom. He wants to shape others' lives through this message. And I want to encourage you that all of us have been given this kingdom to give away. And it's our opportunity, in fact, our joy to do so. And I hope that you will join in doing that very thing. If God brings about a miracle to authenticate it, praise God. Amen? Lord, we just uh, lift up this opportunity to thank you for the chance to know your work, and to see that you are willing to work amongst us to bring about your message. God, we ask that you would indeed open our hearts up to present the message to our neighbors, to our friends, and that God, if you would work through us to bring about that showtime event, to speak to them and to reveal the, authentic the authentication of that truth, we pray that you would. For we know this is about you, Lord Jesus, and we know this is about your kingdom. And so we ask that you would be exalted. We ask that you would use us as a church. And may we as Olive Branch go from this place to glorify your name and preach about your kingdom. And it is Jesus' name that we all pray. God said, all of us together to God, amen.